The following is presented by Lanier Technical College, Concept One Pulley Systems, and Year One Classic Muscle Car Restoration Parts. Hit it! Hang on, you're now part of the fastest podcast on the planet, Bud's Garage Overdrive. Produced in the studios of Jacobs Media, located in beautiful downtown Gainesville, Georgia. On today's show, the 2024 Ford Escape redesign. Iron Man is building cars to give away and a deep dive into rotary valve engines. Plus, our special guest champion road racing driver, Johnny O'Connell. All that and a whole bunch more informative automotive buffoonery with Bud and Tim. Let's kick it in overdrive. Welcome in, folks. This is Bud Hughes, resident of Karna, and Tim DePasquale, a poster to the stars. Tim, you doing all right? I'm doing good, Bud. You we, doing okay? I am. We got a great podcast lined up for you. Mm-hmm. Johnny O'Connell's coming in a little bit. We'll just hand him the microphones and let him and run let away. him go. Yeah, he can go. Last week on the radio show, I got you all upset, as I usually do when I get into the real technical stuff. Oh this, yeah. This really got under. This this really got me enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Because they showed pictures of modern engines that I have taken apart that right. have been retrofitted with this stuff, and it works. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about rotary valves, okay? The biggest problem we have with engines nowadays, or since we've been using them, is we went from steam engines, which yeah. were external combustion engines, mm-hmm. okay? The piston and, and stuff was all separate from where the fire was. You know, on a Stanley steamer, you had a boiler and the steam came in and it pushed the piston and did its thing. Jay Leno does a, a hilarious thing on his uh, YouTube channel about his Stanley steamer. It takes you a half hour to get the thing to even, you know, move forward. Yeah. By the time you set all the valves and if you don't blow yourself up in the process, which right. he almost does. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went from steam engines in cars to steam engines in locomotives, which worked all right. Mm-hmm. Um, but the gasoline engines were out there at this point in time and utilized a lot of the same parts, cylinders, connecting rods, stuff like that. And then we got into, okay, we, you know, we had flat-ahead engines where we had the valves in the engine block itself. Then we went to overhead valve engines, which, you know, you and I came on the scene then with right. small block Chevys and stuff like that. A lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. But one of the biggest problems we have with internal combustion engines still Unless you put a supercharger or a turbo on it, you've only got 14.7 PSI of air pressure, you know, around us constantly to push the air into the engine. Now, you've got the suction of the piston bringing the air in also. Yeah. But right in the way of all of that is something called a tulip valve, a poppet valve, if you will. It mm-hmm. looks like a tulip, if you will, flipped okay. upside down. So when that exhaust or when that intake valve opens up, it blocks about... 25 to 30 percent of the air coming into the intake and on the exhaust side um, it, depending on the duration of the cam and that determines how long this valve is open on the exhaust side you've got the pressure of the piston pushing everything out mm-hmm. of the engine but at the same time as it's pushing the exhaust out your intake valve just cracks open as it's starting its steel and you're pushing some of that exhaust into the intake so you're combining that air. You're, you're, you're diluting the, the nice intake air with some of the exhaust you've just burned. Okay. That's just the way, you know, engines mm-hmm. work, four-stroke engines. Two-stroke engines, you're familiar with them, the oh, weed yeah. whacker and all that. They use reed valves, so there's, you basically have a port, and mm-hmm. you have these real flimsy, well, they're not flimsy, but they're flexible metal 
blades that can open up as the piston's going up and down, and of course you're firing every stroke. So you know you've got a lot of a lot of rev, a lot of power. It's, it's efficient, but it's dirty because mm-hmm. it, it burns a certain amount of oil. You got to mix it with the fuel in order to lubricate the engine. Right. So back in the day, and this would have been in World War II, everybody was looking for a hot rod engine for airplanes, and the hot rod engine they came up was uh, patented by a man named Bishop, and what he did was he took. He took an engine that's very, very reminiscent of a flathead-looking engine. And where you would normally have the valves, he just cut a square or an oval in there, machined it. Mm-hmm. On top of that, he put a, what looks like a cylinder, hollowed, you know, a hollowed-out cylinder on a shaft that had a port made into it. And when that port lined up with the port in the top of the engine, it would let the fuel mixture in. Then it would rotate... And when it rotated, it would let the exhaust out another port. And that, that engine was outlawed for competition in F1 uh, because it made so much power that uh, it kind of went away. Just, you know, they, nobody was going to adapt it for the street because they weren't going to let them use it in racing. And one thing led to another as far as racing determined what you developed wow, it for street. I never knew that. So they came up with another thing that was called a an engine that actually had a cylinder outside of a cylinder. And I made a little I made a little mock up here. And this was used on airplanes in World War II. Mm-hmm. And what it had was the outside. You have a cylinder with a, two holes in it, and right. they're spaced 180 degrees apart. Mm-hmm. So what would happen is this thing would have a, a swash plate on the bottom of it, and it would rotate. And as it rotated the outside sleeve would move up and down just a, a very small increments and as it rotated it would come around we're going to do a video of this it would come around and exhaust on this side 180 degrees away from where the intake was okay okay so you got a can inside of a can with a couple holes and it's rotating and these things were used in fighter uh, mm-hmm. not fighter jets but fighter airplanes yeah uh, but the problem was there was no way to lubricate this very well, and so it wore out the one cylinder against the other. Okay. Okay. So now we've come up into the 21st century, and there is a company out there that is called Vintage, I believe is the correct. Vastec, I'm sorry, Vastec. And they've been building, they've built 10 prototype engines over the past six years. And what they've done to this thing, this model that I made here, is they have taken the rotating valve part and they put it on a camshaft. Mm-hmm. So these two little styrofoam things I made here have this made on them. Okay. That's your intake. This is your exhaust. So they're 180 degrees or 360 degrees away from each other. Mm-hmm. This is the intake cam, if you will. This is the <coughs> exhaust cam, if you will. All right. And these are turning. And so your intake is, you know, taken in fuel. It's doing its thing. It's doing intake, compression, power, and at the same time, this is rotating and it comes to exhaust. So you've got your intake is coming in with no valve and your exhaust is going out with no valve through this hollow shaft. And it produces almost twice as much horsepower. Well, that's the part Naturally I aspirated. See. Yeah, that's what I want to see. Because they... The reason we haven't gone very far with this type of engine right now is mm-hmm. because of the sealing process. 
couldn't get them to seal. Remember the rotary engine when it first came? Not the rotary valve engine, the rotary wankel engine. Yeah. First came out, you couldn't keep tips on the rotors. Mm-hmm. Now they got stuff that'll work. Right. So we've come out with ceramics and things like that. So what about the size of these engines? Will they fit into the size of a normal car engine? There's a LS engine. Okay. That's been made into... Made into it. It doesn't look any different than mm-hmm. the regular LS engine. Okay. Now, they would have to put that... They would have to extend... We're going to put a picture up on our website. And they would have to extend the front of the engine somehow to cover up all these belts and stuff because you still have accessory drives that you've got right. to put on. But it's, it, this is a running engine. Okay. And uh, it'll, it'll make a 5.3 engine will make almost twice as much power naturally aspirated with this valve configuration. Mm-hmm. So you're, you know, you're 480 so when horsepower engine. can we expect to see that? Well, they've got running ones now. They've run them over 5,000 hours. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing it's who comes up with the money. Right. Oh, yeah, that. And it eliminates 43% of the moving parts Holy in the moly. engine. How about the emissions? Um, they don't say. Mm-hmm. We'll find out. Okay. But I thought it was interesting. Rotary Very interesting. valve engines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, we got the information from a, an article at Haggerty's website. And uh, look into it. I think it's pretty cool stuff. Anything you, that, you know, so many things going on with an overhead uh, or with a uh, uh, overhead valve engine, whether you're, whether you're using cams to run it, you know, directly, mm-hmm. like a dual overhead cam engine or a push rod. You're right. eliminating so much things, so many different parts changing directions and wearing against each other by, by using this setup. I think it's exciting. Well, I think it's very interesting. Okay. Do you think that, I mean, we're talking about uh, we'll be using internal combustion engines on new vehicles into the mid-2030s, 2035. I'm sure we will. We're going to see maybe some of even these. longer. You think it'll be long enough that we will get to see some of this technology? This technology has been fostered in some some form mm-hmm. by NASCAR. Okay, the engineers and stuff that are working in NASCAR, and uh, you're gonna. I think you're going to see it in racing before you see it anywhere else. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. But we'll do a video on that. I, I wanted to go. I, we were rehearsing for the video is what we just did. Okay. And, right. you know, you stayed awake the entire time. I, I had to take four Viver in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you did. So look at Bill. He's in there passed out. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, this is a carbon monoxide leak in here. Th- <laughs> thank you. That's from the exhaust cam that I'm holding mm-hmm. in my hand here. This took a You know, this engine took a lot of research. And when you talk about researching new products, uh, we know a couple guys that years and years ago, they saw a need for building better accessories mounts for the front of an engine mm-hmm. to mount your alternator, your air compressor, your power steering, uh, and use just one belt. It mm-hmm. was during the era of the, the serpentine belt that this, this whole thing came together. And they designed pulley systems for Fords and Chevrolets, now Ford would be all pushrod engines. Chevrolet is pushrod, and uh, no, they're all pushrod too. So it's all pushrod stuff so far. We haven't gotten to the overhead cam stuff yet. Ford's the only one using overhead cam V8 stuff, and I, I suspect we'll see that someday come out of the great folks at Concept One. Okay. Uh, Kevin and Randy, when they were uh, studying machining, they were restoring Corvettes with their dad, and uh, they got into looking at these and tired tired of trying to make stuff fit 
mm-hmm. and scrounging junkyards and that to find brackets and parts and pieces and newer stuff started coming out some of the foreign stuff the smaller compressors and things like that they went into that marketplace and and took those components and made them into systems that bolt on uh there's no trying to cob things together they come with the proper spacers and all that and it fits it fits and it works and you need to check them out at c1pulleysystems.com and if you got an issue guess what you pick up the phone and dial the number that's there and you're going to talk to the guys that designed it, printed the catalogs, mm-hmm. are at the machines making the stuff every day. Right. It, it don't get any better than that. It's family business. It is a family business, and it's just uh, great, great stuff. I've used it on every car I've built in the past six, eight years. Mm-hmm. Good folks, check them out at conceptone.com or C1 Pulley Systems. Okay. All right. So, Tim, it's time for Ford News and Rumors with none other than Aaron Hughes from Green Ford here in Gainesville, Georgia. Uh, Aaron, welcome back into Bud Scratch. Hey, gentlemen. Gentlemen. I love it when you come in and call yeah. us gentlemen. Before, before we get into some of the local stuff, I want to talk about the national news. Uh, the okay. three of us, Bill, myself, and Tim, uh, got a 2.5 engine safety recall that affects... Uh, affects our vehicles uh that that engine's used in a lot of different things we all have hybrids here at the at the shop and uh tell me a little bit about what's behind it now but now that you've had a little time to digest it well what i'm noticing uh with it is it's a the recall is is affected by the actual internal combustion engine itself which is not a turbocharged engine so it it has to do with uh oil uh it has to do with an engine failure that that gets oil on the hot parts of the engine and and could create a a fire type situation or something like that which my thought is if oil is coming out of your engine you may have a bigger problem than that is my experience with parts are coming out of engine i should explain though that the entire bottom of the engine on the on these vehicles is completely encased in a um insulated type aluminum pan right so you got to when you're changing oil you got to take out some clips and about 10 10 bolts and drop that in order to get at the oil yeah a lot of the hybrid and all the electric vehicles and really a lot of the vehicles on the road now have uh various pans and and covers and things underneath them to help with the airflow and help fuel mileage on just about every vehicle but uh, i think one of the problems with that would be a situation like this where you know now you you can't get the the fluids can't leave uh, you know, just drop on the ground like it would in our old cars. And you, you know? might not notice it. And you might not notice it. And, uh, yeah. and one thing that, that is nice is because it is a normally or naturally aspirated engine is uh, you don't have to worry about all the hot turbo components and things like Correct. that. Yeah. But, yeah, apparently they have had some issues with them. Well, you know, the recall is on over 125,000 vehicles, and they've yeah. had 25 or 26 Exactly. That actually had the problem in three since the fix was done. Right. So you don't know what conditions these. This is this is worldwide. You don't know what yeah. conditions these things are in, or yeah, or if they're all yeah, if they're rusted and yeah, and have had other um, other kind of issues. Right. right. Uh, I don't think Ford it, is always very very quick to uh, issue recalls and um, you know make sure that they don't have issues. They they try very very hard. Um, sometimes I, I'm amazed at some of the recalls I see because I'm like. Uh, I mean, recently we saw a uh, uh, on a new vehicle uh, a backup camera recall, and, and on my side of things, I'm looking at it and it says it's a stop sale recall. I cannot sell this vehicle because it has a backup camera that may have a problem. Now the vehicle itself has no issues at all whatsoever. The backup camera. 
there's no issue, but it has a recall on it and it's a stop sale. And I'm thinking about all the vehicles I've owned in my days that didn't have a backup camera. We had a, well, they used to have this thing called rear view mirrors that we used yeah, when we were backing yeah, up. Man. But so I'm not able to sell this vehicle because it has a backup camera recall. Things like that. I think Ford is so quick to be uh, preemptive and, and make sure they don't have any problems. Um, and I'm sure it's because it's such a large, large company and, and you know, there's so many legal, legal yeah. and liabilities in, ins and outs. Uh, I think that's kind of the issue there. But I'm with you on the backup camera. Yeah, the backup I mean, camera thing blows my one, mind. You know. Blows my mind. I just uh. don't understand. <laughs> you can't sell the car. The backup camera may not work, but uh, okay. Yeah. Or, or not even that it doesn't work, that they've had some that had problems. Well, it's like this. They, they say that this engine recall, going back a little bit here, was because they were having a problem with some oil pan sealing, and uh, it could cause a loss of oil, which causes your engine to fail. And then, then I, I heard that, uh, or I didn't hear, I did some research on it, that they had some crankshaft grinding problems, that uh, the cranks weren't finished properly, and that leads to bearing failures, and that leads to an engine giving up. Yeah. But with this pan underneath it, and the fact that it's a hybrid, this thing could this thing could could blow up, and you not I don't know how you wouldn't know, but it could it could blow up and go right into hybrid mode, and you'd be running off the battery going down the highway. Huh? Fan in the fire, I guess. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I saw a uh, I was actually behind an accident the other day, and it was a uh, a Range Rover, and it was just a what looked like a minor fender bender but it ignited the engine and i mean it melted the tires off the car they oh, had yeah, three yeah. they had ladder trucks stuff, yeah. and everything else and it was a another situation it was a hybrid vehicle um so yes i mean it melted it to the ground so yeah. wow yeah, and, and they else. had uh, i know they had some problems with the three-cylinder uh which was in the c-max is that the correct vehicle that little yeah they they've put some they have a couple different three-cylinder motors but yeah they, they, they did were, have it in the c-max and they were having a problem with fuel ago. injectors that were just one particular fuel injector on the engine mm-hmm. that was being stressed or whatever the way it was mounted in the engine and it was cracking now if you yeah. get fuel fumes under high pressure in your engine compartment, you're going to run into issues too. There's no right. doubt about it. And accidents will cause that. Yeah, that's a right. A lot of too. times, you that's know, exactly. That's all pressurized and everything's yeah. hot. You got a hot yeah. turbo there, and yeah, you, that's you, right. Yeah, well, we just yeah, got and any, I think the the more complicated they get, the more uh, you know emissions things we have. It's like old catalytic converters. Yep. I mean, I mean, you can have problems with those, and the whole point of that is to help emissions and. And it ends up hurting hurting a lot of things. Okay, now you got a new Ranger coming out for twenty. We do. 24. 24 Ranger, yeah. And uh, it's got some really strong engine choices. Uh, tell us a little bit they about that. Do. It looks a little more truckish than the, the present Ranger. Yeah, well, uh, you know, one of the articles we're looking at here has some of the Baja information and that sort of thing on them. But but, but the big the big deal is they're going to offer the a V6 engine. A Raptor, and, yeah. A, 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 and the Raptor, you're going to have the, the, the V6, which I mean, people are going to love that. Uh, turbo, turbocharged engines is going to have tons of horsepower, over 400 horsepower. Yeah, and over... Um, in a little bitty truck, so and it's... a lot of It's torque. outstanding. Oh, I'm very excited about it. I, I love the Ranger but anyway. The, it I looks it's cool, a great too. Truck. Yeah, it's, it's cool. got a cool look Jacked to it. Jacked up and squared it, off. It yep. looks cool. It's a good-looking truck, and it has, you know, it's a little wider, has a little more suspension travel, um, like like the uh, F-150 Raptors do as well. Um, it's, it's, it's a neat vehicle. How's... 
how's the Maverick doing nationwide? I see, I see you've got a lot of Mavericks, you know, here in Georgia. We, we do. I've got several on the lot now. Um, finally, I have a few for sale. Since the Maverick came out, I have never had one that was for sale as far as uh, from an inventory standpoint. They've always been ordered for somebody. If we did have it to sell, it was always one that somebody backed out of the order. And right now, I finally have a couple on the lot, but it's taken, but now what, two years? So it's yeah. taken two years before we've actually had any on the lot. Um, you know, we're looking forward to, I know the new Mustangs have started shipping, uh, the 24 Mustangs. We haven't seen one of those yet, but we're, we're pretty excited about those as well. That's going to be a cool vehicle. Well, yep. we're going to switch here from the Blue Oval Man to the Iron Man. Oh, yeah? So stop it there. Edit out the oh, yeah, okay? All right. So I'm going to ask Tim's questions right now. Robert Downey Jr. He now has a TV show called Downey's Dream Cars, saving the planet one eco-mod at a time. Yeah, very interesting. I added that in, the one eco-mod at a time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we talked about this probably two months ago when this whole thing, you know, came about and right. they were discussing it. Um, and some of the things he asked in the, you know, the, the article that we've got is... Uh, he considered whether cars have a soul and whether the engine is the soul and if he's putting an electric drive. What he's doing with cars, let me back up and explain. What he's doing with cars, he's taking muscle cars that we've all grown up with and, and some eclectic stuff, not, mm-hmm. not all muscle cars. And he's putting electric drive units in them from a, a particular company. We've talked to uh, Andy and Pooja about this, this company before. These electric drive units can get as high as, you know, 60 to 80 grand right. to put into a car. Mm-hmm. But he's taken a pretty eclectic uh, collection of cars to put these into, and then he's going he's gonna to raffle these cars off right. to uh, just you or me. Mm-hmm. And you can buy a ticket that's, uh, you know, anywhere from $10 for, uh, to, you can get 85 entries for $5,000 into this raffle thing. Right. But the cool thing about it is he took he took a Corvette, 67 Corvette, I think it is, mm-hmm. a Volkswagen bus, right, a Riviera, yeah, and a 4x4 Chevrolet pickup truck. And they all look cool. And they all look cool. And, uh, you know, I think it's uh, what he's doing here as far as raffling them off so they're not going to Barrett-Jackson and, and you know, for... Nothing wrong with Barrett-Jackson, but they're not going for huge, huge sums of money. It may raise more money this way for his particular uh, benefit called the Footprint Coalition. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that maybe he isn't on to something here because, you know, collector car guys, not collector car guys, let's say hot rod guys. Yeah. Okay. They may just want to, these are cars we go out with to cruise-ins and stuff like that. We don't necessarily need long-range vehicles and stuff to do this with because a lot of the hot rods that we have out there aren't good long-range cars anyway no, no uh, you no. know you put a blower on them and turbos and all this stuff right and they're they're fun to get out and and play with but mm-hmm. you, know, you can't drive them on long trips because they're not made for that yeah it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have 600 horsepower to r- ride over to the sonic no. to, you know <laughs> yeah. for a cruise in uh, but 
I mean, they look cool, but it is a lot more practical to have something with an electric motor that is very easy to drive. And, and zero maintenance for the most right. part, especially in this use. Mm-hmm. You can come home and plug it back in. and You know, like a Buick Riviera? Yeah, I know they had the nail head engine back in them, you know, in the 401 back in the day or the 455 yeah. or whatever. But that's just a, a luxurious car. Sure. And I think making it no, more luxurious is like that Cadillac I drove a few weeks ago. You know, there's no sound in it. Right. Then you put in a killer stereo system. and Oh, now you really got something. Now you got something cooking. And as far as uh, vehicles having a soul, I do believe that the vehicle becomes an extension of the person that you are, whoever the person who owns the vehicle. Yeah, I think the soul thing is kind of is, is kind of uh, relates to me as being a memory thing. You know, mm-hmm. when you relate to the car, you know, how... I've never talked to a person yet. I was talking to a secretary yesterday, and uh, her husband is a car person, and so is she. Mm-hmm. But I said to her, you know, I've never talked to anybody that didn't have a car story. Right. Just bring it up, either your grandpa's car or your mm-hmm. your uncle's car or your friend's car or right. your own car. You know, right. everybody's got a car story. Sure. So this is Robert Downey's car story. And we'll see how it is. I haven't caught the show yet. It's on... Uh, it's on something called Max. I think that's uh, HBO Max or something, and uh, you probably have to subscribe to it. But we'll figure I, a way to we'll yeah. figure out a way to get it off. I have to get my grandkids over there to turn the TV on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one's got me a little flabbergasted. I guess really, you know, we were talking with Aaron earlier about about recalls on the mm-hmm. two point five engine. That that's right. that's fairly new stuff. Dodge has mm-hmm. issued a recall on the two thousand three. Dodge Ram for airbag explosions. Right. Not necessarily caused by crashes, but caused by heat and humidity. Mm-hmm. That, that truck was made 20 years ago. Right. When, when does this stop? When, when does, does it stop? You know, on the Mercedes cars, they tell you, if you look it up, that the airbags are only good for 20 years and then they should be replaced. But where are you going to get replacement airbags at? You know, the, the question I have, bud. Go ahead. Uh, I, I, I'm reading your mind. Go ahead. At what point do we take them out? Do we just take them out and we rely on our three-point harnesses on a 20-year-old vehicle rather than risk death by an errant uh, airbag explosion? Yeah. Well, and and I'm thinking, okay, if you want to take the airbags out, let me me go back a little bit. If you want to take the airbags out of your car, put in a a four-point harness, a Mm -hmm. proper four-point harness. Right. and actually secure it properly. You know, you know, don't bolt it to the floor. You I mean, holy cow, bud. We grew up standing up in the middle of the front seat. Well, here's what concerns me. This is 2023. We're, we're doing a recall. It's 23 years old. Mm-hmm. In 23 years, there hasn't been an OEM or an American manufacturer that could build these airbag igniters. Well, there you go. Well, they are being... The igniters are built in Tennessee by a Chinese company. And when the NHTSA approached them recently, I think we did this on a show just a few weeks ago, they told them, no, we're not going to do it. So the NHTSA... They're not going to do the replacement bags? They're not going to do... No, they're not going to issue a recall. They were asking them to issue a recall on something that had to do with their igniters, and they refused to do it. 
Well, Stellantis has, er, the, you know, Mopar, mm-hmm. Mopar <laughs> has, has urged owners of 276,000 other vehicles, older vehicles, to get their airbags replaced. So once that car is out of warranty or doesn't have the original owner, yeah. who knows where this who stuff goes? Who knows? But this database, I don't think, is working out. I don't think so. But, you know, that, that's just, that's horrible. You got a 20-year-old <laughs> car and the airbag goes off and injures you. And you're you're not in a wreck, right? That is just now. What, what's to what's to make you believe that this twenty year old airbag is going to go off if you're in a wreck? Right, because so many times you see the the wreck and the airbags didn't deploy. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it's just it's just uh, befuddles me. Well, it's it's a, a lot of it has to do with government mandating. Well, how long are you supposed? You know, if you buy a toaster, how long are you supposed to expect the thing to last? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and and you have the right to go buy another toaster. I think you're. I'm right with you, and you should have the right to take that airbag out. Well, yeah, that's absolutely what I would do. Which is exactly when it would go off. Well, <laughs> sure. You try to get well. it out of there. <laughs> Come on, you little. <laughs> yeah, boom. <laughs> and, you're, and all of a sudden, you're tattooed to your seat. You know. <laughs> Uh, we could maybe repurpose those as uh, defibrillators sometime, some type, you know. Uh, yeah, if you want to, if you want to hang on to one, good mm-hmm. luck. I have set them off purposely. Oh yeah, uh, you know, as a as a demonstration. Mm-hmm. Right. It's it's like they've got some force. Right. It, it would be like having a you know the biggest football player you can think of take a a uh, sheet of uh, plywood and mm-hmm. smacking you in the face with it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well. Do you know what a cannabis is? I know what cannabis is. I knew that. <laughs> but that's not what you're referring no, to. No, 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 no. Okay. Well, uh, according to this article, a CANBUS is the internal computer network that keeps everything in your car running. So it's, it is connected to everything electrical. It's like, uh, it's like mission control. Mm-hmm. It's... Go, no go, you know, when it goes, when it doesn't go, when does it, you know, when do you booster up, when do you mm-hmm. retro rocket, when do you do all of that stuff? It's all controlled by this CAN bus. Right. Well, th- thieves have figured out a way to get into your CAN bus through the headlight or taillight wires. And I find that fascinating because it took me four hours to get a Volkswagen New Beetle headlight out. I'm saying that's what, what I'm thinking. See, when I said when I read be, this, I said, "Well, good luck yeah, getting a taillight or a headlight right, out of the car." By the time you get done with that, who'd want to steal it? Hell, I'll just ride the bus. <laughs> <laughs> but the I guess if you specialize in a specific car and you figure mm-hmm. out a way to get it out quickly or get at the wires quickly or something. Right. Uh, but man, I mean, to get a taillight out of a car now, you don't do that from outside. No. You got to do. You got to. And you got to have those special tools from that high-end to, tool yeah. guy that drives the big van. Yeah, to get you know, just to get, to some get of it the, out. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, but and they say that you can get into it, or the 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 thieves can now get into them, and we're hoping that uh, getting access to these data wires uh, yeah. becomes a little more hard to do. What I what I want to do is kind of why I focus on purchasing vehicles that are least stolen. And <laughs> <laughs> thought about that. All right, you go <laughs> the least stolen. Yeah, well, the, the they're hoping that the automakers will implement the most notably the zero trust approach, wherein every device, oh, even in the internal CAN yeah, bus, needs right. to be verified before 
any other communications. Mm. You are familiar with this CAN bus stuff because I know when you put in convertible tops and things, mm -hmm. you have to take them to the dealer or you have to have the dealer come to you and code the switch or the part. Yes, we've had the, to do that in the past. Yeah, you're the making the CAN bus yeah, happy. Right, right, right. And we've had several vehicles recently when we removed the headliner assembly and unplugged the wiring harness that is above the headliner assembly. The vehicle would not start until we plugged everything back in. So it is all interconnected. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, because if you're halfway into the vehicle and it's the end of the day and you mm -hmm. want to move it or something... Right. Now you've got to put the whole thing back together so that you can even move the vehicle. Do you have those things you put under the tires and can jack the car up? and Go jacks, yep. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sure do. Yeah. You know what else works? Furniture dollies. Yep. <laughs> yep, they sure do. Mm -hmm. and In a pinch, you know. Well, there's places you can get them pretty reasonable and right. jack the car up and put them on there. Mm -hmm. they, most of them will hold 1,000 pounds. Yeah. So, hmm. There's your tip of the week. Very interesting. Puzzled by maintaining your car? Not the canvas system, necessarily. Uh, but Oakwood Tire and More can help you out with the hot weather AC service cooling systems. Service your battery. Remember I told the battery story last week. Mm -hmm. And electrical repairs. Routine maintenance, not to mention tires for everything you drive or tow. And windshield wiper blades for all these pop-up showers we've been getting. I know Mike likes to use the, what's that stuff called? The magic stuff you dump on your window and it makes the the water oh yeah rainx rainx yeah. yep yep he yep. likes using that stuff but uh 3120 atlanta highway or oakwoodtire.com and they you know they're great folks to know because once you get out of your car's warranty and stuff like that it's good to have trusted mechanics you can take your car to right. and have them uh, work on it for you mm -hmm. huh. Well, today's special guest, actually, we have a special co-host and a special guest. Uh, Tim could not be here when we were recording this. And uh, so I've got Aaron Hughes from Greenford. He is uh, sitting in, but he is also the consummate IMSA and F1 fan and uh, knows all about this, uh, this next guy that we're going to interview. He is a champion race car driver, uh, multiple Le Mans winner. And uh, just a great all-around guy, and that would be Mr. Johnny O'Connell. Johnny, welcome into Bud's Garage Overdrive. Yeah, Bud, thanks for having me in, and it's uh, always a pleasure to, to come in here and chat with you about racing and cars. It's, uh, yeah, no, happy to be here. And, uh, Aaron, you should know that uh, Johnny has proposed to your mother. I've heard this. Four or five times that I can remember, every time he comes over for a little Italian food. There you go. Well, she's a good cook for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know what? It is. Uh, it's why I'm here today. Well, <laughs> Johnny, I've known you for a couple decades now. I don't know where the time goes. Uh, none of us do. But how long you been? How long you been doing the gig? So, well, I mean, I first started racing before I was ten. So, uh, goodness gracious, man! I turned sixty-one two days ago. And, That's right. Happy uh, birthday! Yeah, thank you. And. Uh, <laughs> So, but professionally since 1986, and uh, so uh, yeah, a long time. Been uh, been very blessed throughout my career, and uh, the fact that uh, you know to this day I'm still getting paid to uh, to drive race cars is uh, is a pretty cool thing. So it uh, I've seen a lot over the years, a whole lot of changes, but uh, yeah, no, happy to uh, happy to be still be doing what I love. Good deal. 
Okay, 10 years old. How did it all start for you? Were you in a racing family? Did you work on cars? Your man, dad, your mom? No, no, man. So not a car family. It was, uh, we were actually on vacation in Cape Cod. And uh, I was probably five years old. And uh, there was a go-kart track. And uh, one day my father took us there. And uh, I was too tiny. Uh, you know, they had the little height line. And so my father let me sit on his lap. Back, that was back before lawyers ruined everything. <laughs> and uh, spill a cup of coffee, man. That's $10 million. You know, that they're just, well, I'm not a fan of lawyers. But anyway, so sat on his lap. I can remember the smell. I can remember the smell. I can remember the layout of the track. And pretty much left there just, you know, knowing this is what I wanted to do. Um, and uh, had a great second grade teacher, Miss Fogarty. And uh, she was the one that told us that uh, we live in a country where if you have a dream, you can make it happen. If you want to be a doctor, you can be a doctor. If you wanted to be, you know, a salesman, you can be a salesman. You know, the whole, the whole litany. And I was like, you know, raising my hand. I want to be a racing driver. And uh, never gave up on that dream. I started cutting lawns at the third grade, had my first go-kart by the fourth grade. We lived across the street from an elementary school. But, uh, but always knew what I wanted to do. Started racing, you know, uh, go-karts at about, you know, probably 10, 11 years old, somewhere around there. And, uh, and just always pursued it. And, uh, you know, got lucky. It, uh, you, I, I got several big breaks along the way. One, I won a scholarship with the Jim Russell School that allowed me to start racing cars. Uh, and then... Uh, I won that first championship and against some really good guys. There's guys like Tommy Kendall, Jeff Krosnoff, David Kudre. There's there's about five or six guys that were really strong. And uh, they came from wealthy families. I did it. And so uh, after I won that championship, I was very disappointed Roger Penske didn't call. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Roger, yeah, I like Roger. He's a really great guy. And... Uh, but so went to work for the driving school and along the way met some people that started helping me out and uh, was poor for a long time. I mean, really poor. And uh, but uh, finally started getting some breaks and making some money. And uh, yeah, it all turned out great. Now, how old were you at that time? So I, it was uh, 22 or 23 when okay, I won I that you. first championship with the with the Jim Russell School. I think I was 25 when I won the Formula Atlantic Championship. Uh, again, on a shoestring shoe budget. Uh, my, my biggest break probably came, you know, I wanted to be an open wheel guy. Right. But, uh, so, I mean, now it's ridiculous. But, uh, but back then, you still needed, you know, what was, to me, unobtainable money. And uh, so, uh, I'd actually, I'd been hired by Chip Ganassi to race for him in Indy Lights. And there were only two guys, I think, in the history of Indy Lights that got paid. And it was myself and, uh, and Tommy Byrne. Great guy. And, uh, and I think I had a five-year deal with Chip, uh, to, and that was 1989. And at the end of the year, there were two European guys that came over and offered him half a million dollars. Oh, there you go. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so it's the team manager's like, why are we paying Johnny when these guys are going to pay us? And so I believe that was my first you know, trip to the unemployment line. And, uh, but I got an opportunity to test with Nissan that went well, that went really well. I didn't get the ride because they weren't, they were looking for a clear number two. Right. And, uh, but I was very persistent about calling them 
and eventually they started using me for testing and then bringing me in for the third guy uh, as the third guy uh, for the endurance races and you know eventually I became a full-time factory guy for Nissan so right yeah so that was uh, those were good days so that was fun and exciting and uh, still a pretty young guy they were looking for a number two guy explain that process so the at that time Steve Millen mm -hmm. uh, was the guy for the 300 ZX and they did you know when they did the initial test they tested five of us at Willow Springs uh, nobody got within a second of Steve except for me and I went quicker and so I think it was a dilemma for them because they did not want they wanted a clear number two guy just the, a backup to Steve and uh, so they gave it to Jeremy Dale and by doing so they took him out of the Dodge lineup and so they were kind of hurting their competition at the same time as getting the, the guy that they wanted. A um, couple years later, I got a, uh, you know, I'd been working at, at Bondurant as an instructor there. And Bondurant moved to Phoenix. I didn't really, you know, Redhead and the Phoenix doesn't <laughs> really go together <laughs> too well. And uh, so I delayed a little bit, but then finally moved down to Phoenix. And literally two weeks after being down there, Working as an instructor at PTI, which was the prototype team for Nissan, not the GTO, the prototype team, was there testing with Jeff Brabham, Ari Lang, Dyke, and Bob Earl. And so I went over there just to shake hands and, <clears throat> excuse me, kiss babies and uh, basically talk to the team. Hey, you know, if you ever need me, you know, and luckily one of the, the engineers was like, hey, Brabham's got to leave early tomorrow. Do you want to finish his work? And I'm like, are you kidding? He's like, no, we've been talking about getting you in the car for a while. So uh, now back then you didn't have all the data and the computer stuff that, that you have now. But I could, I could watch Jeff and I could see, okay, he's using this gear in this corner. He's, you know, I could just by watching tell close what he's doing. And so uh, got out there and within, you know, about 10 laps, I was within a second of them. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure I was quicker than Ari and Bob at that time. And then after that point, I was a full-time Nissan guy. So uh, they were going to move me into the GTP program. Uh, but then the Yen tanked. The president of Nissan at that time, who was a big racing fan, had a heart attack and got replaced by a guy that liked golf. Uh oh. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, remember when this happened. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was a great time that Nissan too. 92, 93. Car. If you if you're a Road Atlanta fan, you'll remember they uh, rode off two cars. They they destroyed one. It was yeah. upside down. That was Jeff. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and so lucky it didn't catch fire. Because that was such yeah. a horrible accident. Yeah, he was upside down, and the corner worker came running up to him with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Yeah. I think, you know, <laughs> There's was, pictures uh, of it. That was uh, yeah, but. So so anyway, they, they, they were having Goodyear tire fa failures, and that's what those, those wrecks were caused by. And I was supposed to replace Chip Robinson that year, but then they started wrecking all these cars, and so that opportunity never came around. But I think the, the folks at Nissan were like, well, we got this young guy, you know, he's American, let's plug him into the GTO program. And so, uh, so yeah, that was the real beginning of the, of the Nissan stuff. So it, uh, special time, special time. It was really cool. Well, that's did you have did you have any mentors or anything that were helping you through? Because you're, you're talking about a lot. Of, you take it, you know, you take it uh, all in stride. But this is, this is a lot of ups and downs and things that are happening oh, yeah. and not happening. Who, who's well, who's helping I, you through this? Stuff? So, I wish I'd had 
I, I got a break because Bobby Ray Hall went to the same college as I did. So mm-hmm. after I won the Atlantic Championship, you know, Bobby came up to me and he gave me his card and, hey, if I ever can help you. And uh, so I'm like, oh, yeah. So I think, it was like, I think it was like two days later. And, man, waiting those two days was pretty tough. But so Bobby was the one that got me in with Ray Hall. Okay. And uh, so uh, – and then he also arranged a test for me with Jackie Stewart's team over in Europe. I originally, originally really wanted to, to pursue a career in Formula One. Went over, you know, uh, Jackie invited It was with Paul Stewart racing. Jackie's son was running a, a Formula Three team. <clears throat> and uh, went over and tested against Mika Salo, uh, DeFerrin, Coulthard, and, uh, and was quickest uh, of all of them. Had actually had him over by a second uh, at... Uh, at Snetterton and uh, left and Jackie's like, you're great. And then we, there was another guy over there, Dick Bennett's word got around that there's this, you know, crazy fast American, but with Bobby Ray Hall and Jackie Stewart, we couldn't get the money to compete over there. I think it was like $700,000. You know, this was for 1989 for a formula eight. three in 1989. Correct. And man, they were throwing money at it. Yeah. And uh, so we went to, you know, at that time, the tobacco sponsorship was still, Viable, so we went to you know Philip Morris and uh, and R.J. Reynolds. We went to Budweiser. We hit hit all the big ones. And not, it's not Johnny O'Connell, you know, goofball, you know, redhead. <laughs> right. It's Bobby Ray Hall and Jackie Stewart. And uh, there was no interest on American companies to spend money on an American in Europe. If they were spending money on drivers in Europe, they wanted to spend it on a British guy. So they look good to the British fans. They, they, right. it, it, it's, if you travel the world the way I have, and, and you can just pay attention, shoot, look at women's soccer right now. You know, I mean, it's like the Americans are not as patriotic, to be honest with you, as other countries. If you're a French racing team, you want French racing drivers. If you're right. an Italian, German, it doesn't matter what country from, you, your preference is to have drivers from your own country. It just doesn't work that way over here. And uh, so... Uh, and that is when, you know, then I came back, I got the Indy Lights deal and all that kind of stuff. So it uh, frustrating. You know, I mean, I, I think I could have done done pretty well. But as far, you know, the, the only true mentor I to get back to your original question was uh, was Bobby. Hmm. And then Bobby was working on his own career. And uh, so, you know, he was his career was at a highlight. He was. Had his own team, or looking at getting his own team, he was one of the big names. So, uh, so at so, that time, that would have been right around when Bobby was looking to what stop driving, right? Well, been, no, it was early. He's still driving. Oh, okay, no, right. he's still driving. So okay, gotcha. the, it was. Uh, so that would have been about between you know. Well, I won the Atlanta Championship in '87. Got hired by Nissan in '92. Okay, so gotcha. you know uh, it. Uh, so he drove for a few more years then, also, and was becoming a business owner. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Uh, uh, so, yeah, and I mean, he really, Bobby's crazy smart, and, uh, you know, this this career is so much about timing, you yeah. know, right place, right time, and when you get an opportunity, you got to stick it, yeah. and uh, so I, I feel for young guys today trying to come up, because these cars are so much easier to drive, it's more difficult to tell who the true talent is, when you've got ABS, traction control, nobody ever miss, misses a shift, and right. uh, and you never roll off the trailer far out far out as in I mean now you you know it's guys that got 1600s on their SATs that are determining 
the pace, <laughs> really, right. as in the guys with the laptop, they're really smart and, guys. And these guys are sitting in simulators <laughs> eight hours a day, too, when they're 15 years old. Correct. Right. And that, that, that does make a difference. Right. It, it's the, the way, you know, uh, these simulators, they've gotten really good. And, uh, and iRacing is really good. I, I think there's a whole lot more contact in the sport now uh, than when I was, you know, coming up because, because of sim racing. You know, right. guys not giving any quarter and, you know, you got a car with ABS and there's a little bit of a gap and guys will throw it in there and, and, and it'll still slow down it. Well, it'll slow down, but, Somewhat, yeah. but, but not, you know, <laughs> that ABS gives you a real false sense of security, you know, and okay. uh, you, you just see so much more, you know, contact than, than has ever been, uh, you know, in the sport, certainly in sports car racing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, I think there's a good and a bad side to it. Right. The sim racing, do you, do, you, uh, do you spend much time in simulators now? Are they relevant to somebody like you that, that has been driving by the seat of their pants for so long? Um, the motion, I, I, you know, if you get into the high-end Formula One motion ones, yeah, they're okay. Uh, but, uh, but just your simple, you know, iRacing rig, it helps. You know, so uh, you don't get the feel for braking, but you really get a good feeling for your hands and, uh, and throttle. And, you know, you run at the limits of a car. You actually steer it more with your feet than your hands, as in, you know, getting a little bit of grip on the front or a little bit on the rear. And uh, so, I mean, it's extremely accurate for that. The timing and the visuals now are spectacular. So, like, if you've never run Road America... And you, you're like, you're going to race there in two weeks and you get on Road America by, by the time you get there, you're familiar with it. And I mean, there, you, there might be a little nuance here and there because of elevation change. I mean, you, the corkscrew at Laguna Seca is a great example. It's way different, you know, uh, it's a way different feel uh, when you do it in real life versus a sim. But it, it's accurate. It is super, super accurate. Tell us about the uh, IndyCar days. You had some, you had some chances to drive IndyCars. Um, you know, that's where you wanted to go. Is that? Well, I, yeah, and uh, but so I only got that opportunity because of the split uh, from CART ah, to okay. IRL. Yeah. And so the very first, I'm a, I'm, I'm a road racer, and uh, now ovals are fun when the car is right. They really are. But if I had a car that was right 5% of the time, I'd be surprised. It's the most miserable thing. Uh, and this is long before Hans and safer barriers and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I remember getting in. This, this would have been 96. And Nissan had pulled out of sports cars. But my, my, my team still wanted to go racing. And we were able to raise a little bit of money to start things out to get going. And I remember hopping in the cars, a 95 Reynard at the Walt Disney World track and I'm going down pit lane and you know and now I start to go through the gears and my only thought was I can't believe I don't get to race this on a road course and uh, so it was uh, it was a way to keep my career going but I was you know I mean I 
you know, it was ugly at that time. You know, all the cart people were like, all the IRL guys are losers and wankers. And, you know, it was... Uh, well, and it, you had really a lot of, like, USAC guys. You had a w- real big split of people. You had guys like you from road racing, but you also had guys that were dirt track USAC guys. Oh, yeah. Putting them in Indy cars. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, you never want to, on an oval, race against a guy going, you know, 200 miles an hour who in their vocabulary are the words slide job. Right. You know? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I saw a lot of guys. That was a yeah. dangerous era. Guys were getting killed. Killed yeah. and uh, and paralyzed. Look at Sam Schmidt, and yeah. uh, you know, no, that was a pretty dangerous and tragic time. So it is. I, you know, I sometimes believe just you know God had a plan, had a plan all along. So we did that. We did the IRL, the first three races. I think I finished third in the championship, uh, and but my heart really was never in it. You know, uh, sports car racing in the mid '90s, pre Don Panos, was pretty crummy. You know, after uh, after Camel had pulled out, and and so uh, yeah, it, luckily Don Panos came in and saved sports car racing, uh, pretty much in in my mind, and uh, and then lo and behold, got hired by him. So well, you know, I've listened to you speak a few times before, and uh, this would be a great time to tell us the difference between talking to millionaires and billionaires. I've heard you describe it before when dealing with Dr. Panos. Well, I mean, Don, Don was uh, a great guy. You know, the billionaires, and I know a bunch of them, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and they, they have vision and they're willing to take a chance. Now, granted, when you have a lot of money, you can take some chances. I remember coming down here, and <laughs> this is when I was racing for, for, for Nissan, and it might, might have been 92 or 93. And there's this winery in the middle of nowhere, this huge thing called Chateau Elan. And I, all I could think was, what knucklehead would waste their money <laughs> built in a winery in Georgia? And, and you had a wine background, kind of, well, sort of. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my first job out of college was working for the Gallo Wine Company. But uh, so... Uh, so yeah, no, he was a he was a special guy, and uh, it uh, you know I mean he did so many amazing things, you know the uh, but the billionaire guys you know are are they're they're very unique, they're very driven. Uh, How do you go about making the phone calls to those you, guys? You know what? It, it's so funny because you I think one of the reasons I had success over you know throughout my career is the ability to. Have a conversation with Roger Penske or any billionaire or Don Panos uh, the same way I would with the guy that's behind the counter at Seven Eleven. Right. You know, you treat everybody the same, and uh, and so uh, so yeah. I mean, my my deal with Don was funny because when I started learning about him, uh, I think it was up at you know I first introduced myself to him at Sebring, uh, and this would have been ninety six, ninety seven. And I'm like, Don, this is, this is so crazy. I'm not driving for you, man. I'm American. I got red hair. I could practically be your son and, you know, make, make him laugh and all that kind of stuff. And so I think one thing, you know, race car drivers often do is they just make one phone call. So you make one phone call to the billionaire. Hey, Don, this is Johnny O'Connell. I used to race for Nissan. Yeah, I really would like to drive for you. Well, yeah, Johnny, you know, we're kind of busy at the moment. Then the, then the person never calls back. And so I would literally call Don like every two, three weeks and ask for a job. And uh, so finally, you know, uh, 
I'd done a few things for him, you know, like a couple street races and did very well in one. But the guy managing the team that time was uh, at that time was Tony Dow. And Tony Dow wanted ex Formula One guys. And uh, I think it was 97 and uh, 97 or 98. And uh, Don, you know, told Tony, uh, I want Johnny in the car uh, for Le Mans. And uh, not racing, for, uh, racing for the for the French team. Uh, dams and so went over and it was really interesting because you know I'd done Le Mans uh, in 94 we won it and uh, go back you know with Don's guys and the French team and unbeknownst to them I spoke a little French <laughs> so, uh, it, which turned out to be advantageous and uh, but so like you know you had pre-qualifying back then you'd go back and you'd run about a month or two before the race and so, and it's, it, go, it went from like, you know, four to eight, and then nine to midnight or something like that. And they didn't put me in the car. They put, it was all French team with two French drivers going back to the nationalistic thing that I was talking about earlier. Right. And they put me in, in the final hour, 11 to 12, uh, in the Panos. This was uh, the GT1 car. Uh, which is a great car, car by the way. Was this the open cockpit? Car? No, yeah, no closed cockpit. Closed one, closed yeah, cockpit. the Batmobile. The Batmobile. Yeah, and uh, I went quicker than both their ex French Formula One guys, and uh, and it was really it was funny because you know at that t Tony had been Tony Dow had been kind of cold to me and all that kind of stuff and. He'd been kind of cold, and then I come in, and you know, every all the French guys were like, "Johnny, you are incredible, very good lads, very good lads." And then Tony came up and put his arm around me, and he's like, "I don't know why they're so surprised. I, I knew you were going to do that." And so uh, ever since then, from that point moving forward, I was I was solid in the team. So uh, yeah, good memories, good memories. Oh, that's fantastic. I remember uh, talking to David Brabham one time, and he said that that was a crazy, uncomfortable car to be in the Batmobile. What, what we're, what we're, uh, he just said the noise, the heat, the everything was oh, just yeah, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. There, there was no comfort uh, in that thing. But then, you know, and again, remember David, I think that was, I don't know if it, whether he had done much after being out of Formula One. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he went pretty close from Formula One to, to, to driving for Don. Uh, I had come from that Nissan, which was yep. just like a sauna. And a, and a beast, and uh, so it was it was difficult because there wasn't a whole lot of moving air in the cockpit. They didn't have air conditioning back then, and uh, it was it was unique because you sat so close to the rear axle that the sensation of oversteer was exaggerated a little bit. And man, was it noisy! It was. I mean, I pay for it now, but uh, but the cool factor on that car was off the chart. It was it was a very cool car to drive. Yeah, tell us a little bit about uh, some of your co-drivers during well, that era. So you know, again, David was uh, extremely competitive, uh, great guy. Uh, there was a guy named Eric Bernard, another ex Formula One guy, uh, very good. You you there is kind of like a who's who. You know, Andy Wallace was part of that, uh, and then uh, and then of course Ian Magnuson. And so Yan, Yan, you know, was hired as my teammate after he'd been let go by uh, Jackie Stewart. He'd been driving for Jackie Stewart. And uh, at the very first day testing, we're out there and we're, uh, you know, we're all kind of sharing the same car. David, I think, was doing like 112s or whatever like that. And, I'm, and Yan came in. Yan's such a little tiny, you know, bullfighter Viking. 
and uh, he probably weighed all of about 125 pounds uh, and uh, gets in his car and in, in the race car and he's immediately trying to show off and beat David and you know he gets in within you know four or five tenths and then throws it off big in turn one and uh, and so I get in my pickup truck and I go you know pick him up and and I'm like, don't worry about it, man. The guys, they're, they're, you know, they'll get it together. You know, fix in a, in a couple of days. We'll have another go. He's like, I'm not worried about that, man. Carbon fiber is not my problem. Carbon fiber is their problem. And I'm like, that's such a different attitude. <laughs> so you know, you, you Formula One guys. But uh, but yeah, some know some great guys. You know, uh, you know at, at Panos, and I've been lucky. I've had great teammates all along. You know, I've done a lot of cool stuff. Uh, you know, over the years. You know, shoot, the number of ex F1 guys I've had as my teammate is is a large number. You know, you got Oliver Gavin, Olivier Beretta. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, Ron Fellows was a great teammate. Uh, there's just. The list is almost too long to remember them all, Scott Pruitt. And uh, so, you know, and everybody, you know, all these guys have their own different strengths. You, you learn a lot from them. Uh, Antonio Garcia is a fabulous driver, Marcel Fassler. Uh, you learn a little bit from all. You know, one of the things that I always found interesting is so, like, you go to a place like Le Mans. It's like nine miles long. And, and myself, Yan, and Antonio, we will do all the same lap time within a tenth or two. But then when you look at the data, you do it a little bit differently. There's, you know, one guy might be carrying the brakes a little bit longer in the one corner or, or whatever. And so you can, you can look at the data and learn from each other. But, uh, yeah, no, some, uh, I've, been, I've been very fortunate. Kind of goes to that. You surround yourself with good people and good things happen. And uh, certainly GM gave me a, a, a lot of good stuff. Yeah, let's talk about GM. You're in the Hall of Fame at the museum. And I know we've joked about the reason the museum collapsed was because, you know, it was right by your picture there and <laughs> couldn't support the weight of the no, crowd or something no, like no, that. No, no, no. Tell us yeah. a little bit about your GM days and, and Dan Binks and that whole group there. You know, that was it was a, it was a special, special time. Stuff, yeah. It was. Well, you know what? I was driving for Panos at the time and uh, at this was uh, in 2000. And I could see the writing on the wall, the direction. Don was taking less interest in the racing team and more in the, in the sanctioning body and, and building the sport. And uh, so I started fishing around a little bit. And uh, I, just, I literally made a call to Doug Feehan. This would have been in December. I'm like, hey, you know, Doug, I, I didn't get him. I got his answering machine. And then the message was so cheeky and short. But uh, I was like, hey, hey, Doug, Johnny O'Connell, you might remember me from the days uh, when I drove for Nissan and, and beat up on you. And, uh, hey, if your dance card isn't full for next year, give me a call. And literally eight hours later, he called back with an offer. And so uh, originally I was just going to do the four endurance races that year. Uh, Chris Neifel had already signed to be Ron Fellow's teammate for the season. And uh, so we do the, the first race is Daytona, and that's with the Earnhardts. And so it's a really big deal, and uh, we wind up winning the race overall. And uh, literally about two or three weeks after that, well, two weeks later, we tragically lost Dale. But then soon after that, Nifel got offered the job to be chief steward for CART. And so that was something he wanted to do. He, he'd been thinking about getting out of the car. And so lo and behold, you know, I, uh, they called me up. They're like, we want you for the full year. And I'm like, came on. 
And, uh, you know, after that, we went, we won Le Mans, we won a, t a ton of stuff. And so it, uh, it, very special time, very special era. Well, you know, you, when I think of uh, the Johnny uh, and Ron Fellows era, that I just thought that was such a great pairing for all those years. I know you've always had wonderful things to say about Ron and Ron, wonderful things about you. You guys obviously had a great relationship as co-drivers. We did, and uh, kind of grew into that. You know, there was one, you know, you, you, you train over the winter to, because you want to be the guy to win the championship. And when you're sharing a car with somebody, and the rules back then made it difficult for two guys to share it because the, we did not win the championship in 2001. So in the offseason, I had negotiated, hey, I, I want to run for the championship. And it used to be that, you know, you got one point if you qualified on the pole. Okay. All right. So if, if you're my teammate and you qualify and you get the pole, you got a point over me. Okay. So and I you just, didn't even have an opportunity to get in the car to qualify. Correct. Right. And so I made certain in my off-season negotiation that I would get an equal number of qualifying attempts to run. And uh, everything's good. So we do the, we show up at Sebring, which is the very first race of 02, and they've changed the rules. It's no longer that, it's what driver is in the car the longest. So we get to that. Now, Corvette had a one Sebring in forever. And so in 02, uh, and I, at that time, I had one Sebring three or four times, I, and very comfortable on that racetrack. And so I get in at like eight o'clock, and I should be in to the end. And we get into my first stint. I come in, I get fuel tires, I go out, and I'm like, I'm in this baby. And I'm not calculating how much time I've been in the car and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I'm like, you know, I'm bringing this thing home. And when my tanks are at about, you know, 50%, and I've, you know, we're banging laps really solid, I get a radio pit next lap. And I'm like, what are you talking about, pit next lap? And uh, the driver change pit next lap, and then I realized what was going on. Right, is that they were they had made the and if if you had to pick one, Ron was the better choice because he'd been there longer, he'd right. been a part of the team longer. So uh, so anyway, I pit, Ron gets in, and I get out, and you've got Doug Feehan and Herb Fischel, and they're sitting in chairs in pit lane, and I get out and. I've learned to control my anger, but, but man, I'm on fire. I've got veins in my teeth, and I go over to both of them, and, you know, I'm like, I just want you both to know that the car is in a whole lot of expletives. Fine. And, uh, and then went back into the trailer and started punching cabinets. I was on fire. And so, uh, so then Robin Pratt, Gary's wife, comes in, and John, John, you know, simmer down, you know, you guys are going to win, and all that kind of stuff, and and uh, we do the podium celebration, and I'm still angry. And uh, the next day I wake up and I'm like, you might be in trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I call, you know, I call Feehan, I call, I call Gary Claudio, the, the GM, you know, PR, I call everybody. And I call Herb, and I don't get Herb, I get his voicemail. <laughs> And everybody's cool. Like, they're still on the high. They're like, we understand, you know, all that kind of stuff. So a, a week goes by and my phone rings and, and it's Herb Fischel. And, now, and for those of you that know, Herb was the guy at GM that determined all of motorsports. 
And Herb calls me up, and he kind of, he's from South Carolina or something. Yeah, they house Flowery Branch these days. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's great. He's like, you know, there used to be a restaurant there, or something McGill, Major McGill, and he's going on and on about my little town and how much he likes it. And uh, I'm like, Herb, I'm like, it's really, what a cool guy. So I'm like, uh, hey, Herb, I just wanted to, you know, apologize because, you know, I was pretty fired up when I got out of that car. I just thought, you know, it was a big mistake on your guy's fault. I was doing the lap time. My eyes were adjusted to the darkness and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I just, you know, I, my behavior might have been a little bit inappropriate. I just wanted to apologize to you. And this is one of the coolest things. This is kind of let, let, let you know when your guy gets it. He's like, Johnny, it's the day you don't get upset when we pull you out of the car that we're not interested in you. You're doing a great job. We're proud to have you a part of GM. And so that was, that was, whew. That's fantastic. All right, yeah, yeah. So now, that, but boy, that sure seems like that would make a tough relationship with your co-driver, though. Well, Having that, that, those yes. kind of rules. So you know? I'm bringing this full circle. So we go on. Ron wins the championship, all right? And before that, you know, when we got to Sonoma, and we raced at Sonoma. You know, Ron and I are, uh, are in the trailer. And uh, Ron's like, listen, man, I know it's kind of difficult for you to, to play the role supporting me this year. And, and by the way, at that time, Ron was the number one guy. Well, then all of a sudden, they start to realize we got two number one guys. We got right. two guys in this car that are equally strong, fast, and, and ferocious. And so, uh, so Ron uh, is like, listen, I, you know, I appreciate you supporting me this year. Next year, I'll support you. And so, which I thought was a pretty cool thing. So we go on, we win the championship. You know, Ron gets the trophy and the ring. And I'll get nothing but a stupid pat on the back. But, uh, but then you go into 03 and they change the rules. They realize it was a stupid rule. Yeah. And so, uh, so we go on and we win the championship in 03. This shows you the character of Ron Fellows in that the he and his wife Linda had gone out and gotten a replica of the championship ring in 02 and given that to me. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. very cool. So that was uh, yeah, no he's Oh, that's uh, neat. Yeah. So that was a that was a good memory special times. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. You're from upstate New York, way upstate New York, right? Well, no, I was or, born no. I was born in Poughkeepsie, New oh, York gotcha. only because I was in a hurry to get things going. <laughs> and I was like a month early. But I grew up in Riverside, Connecticut. And, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny. I was talking to somebody about this recently. One of the uh, the early moments in my career, we were only about 10, 15 miles from Byron, New York, mm -hmm. which is where Luigi Cinetti had his Ferrari dealership. And so I was probably seven, six or seven, when my father took me just to look at the Ferraris. You know, I remember like in the in the in the showroom there was a Dino or something like that. So I'm this. You know, I mean, you ever, you've seen like skinny, you know, redheads, you know, they're pretty amusing looking and uh, they are. And uh, so I'm sure they saw this goofy little kid drooling and oh my God, oh my God. Well, one of the salespeople was like, hey, you want to see the race cars? And they took me downstairs, which is where they had the race cars. And so, yeah, so it's just one of those things. I was throwing gasoline on the fire. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, uh. You know, neat, neat stuff. You know, a lot of whole, whole lot of stories from over the years. I mean, yeah. I mean, think about. It. I mean, I, I did. You know, going back to to to, to drivers. You know, uh, my last Le Mans with Don was in 2000 when Mario Andretti was part of the program, and 
you know, to get to hang out with Mario, who literally is, you know, probably the most accomplished, greatest, you know, uh, race car driver ever. Uh, you know, cool, cool stuff. You know, it's funny, that same year I had a, a, had a Japanese teammate, Hiroki Kato. And uh, at Le Mans, we are sharing, you know, you, you have like a room at the racetrack and it's got a shower and two beds in it for us to share. And so, uh, you know, Hiroki was, uh, you know, he and I became good friends. We still stay in touch, you know, via social media and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I got to, got to do some really cool stuff. Well, that's fantastic. Now you were with Corvette Racing until, how, how did that it, finish up? Until 2010. And, uh, and at that time I was, goodness gracious, mid late forties. Uh, and, uh, and I think they wanted to bring in young guys, you know, you got to keep doing that. And, uh, and I was by far senior, but they also had the Cadillac program. They were bringing the Cadillac V program back. And so it was kind of crappy, to be honest with you, because I never saw any of this come in. But and you guys were so fast. Oh, yeah. That's no, what, no. I mean, you win in championship. <clears throat> we, we won the yeah. championship, Yen yeah. and I, in 2009. Uh, 2010 was a crappier for the team. There were mechanical issues and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so, uh, see, it's funny because the last time I ever drove the Corvette, in 2010 was a test day at road Atlanta and in the wet and the dry, I was faster than both Olivier Beretta and Antonio Garcia, who we, I was sharing with the car over the two, two, three days. And, uh, but, but, you know, you know, yeah. so anyway, yeah. they, uh, the guy at the time was, a uh, Mark Kent. And remember, you know, the, the, the auto industry got slammed. What, when oh, Obama, yeah, yeah, when Obama came in or whatever, and uh, and so there were cuts, and there were so many met peop- great people that got the hatchet at GM, and uh, there. But they, you know, uh, I had a meeting with them, and they're like, "We're going to move you over to the Cadillac program," and that was a world challenge. I turned out to be awesome because <laughs> those are neat cars. It they were great cars, standing starts, and uh, it was uh, a, it was a pretty cool time. And you, know, you miss Le Mans. I miss the big races. I, Le Mans and Sebring have always been just mega special places uh, for me. But uh, but so we didn't win. We did, you know they they really choked us down the first year. And uh, but I finished out the year getting like two or three races once they figured out their balance of performance garbage. Right. And then we won the championship in uh, for four years straight uh, all the way through 2015. Should have won in 2016. We had one race where there was an electrical issue. But it was funny because I was actually having a conversation. Uh, this would have been about 2016, 2017 with Jordan Taylor. And he's like, you know what? Most of the guys in IMSA right now would rather be doing World Challenge because World Challenge was really pretty cool. You had a bunch of, you know, really super fast guys and like a 50-minute sprint race. And, with, and at the a, highest level in IMSA, the cars were kind of not... Not they happened yeah, at that they, time. They, yeah. they weren't. They weren't as cool. Yeah. And really uh, so, I mean, it's like you know, you you get you know, at the start of a world challenge race, you get Will Power, you get Scott Dixon, you get you know, top IndyCar guys going out to watch a standing start because it's cool. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, you know, right place, right time. So that that turned out to be really. Oh, cool. that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about your uh, your partner on the Cadillac team. 
He's a, he's a special guy, too. Andy Pilgrim. Mm-hmm. And so Andy was, for the majority of my time at Cadillac, five years, I think, my mm-hmm. teammate, a great guy and uh, consistent as hell. One of the few British people that aren't always trying to stab you in the back. <laughs> and uh, he's, but that, but he got, he's actually an American citizen now. And uh, well, that's true. I mean, that's the, you show me a British racing car driver that isn't like, you know, smiling at you while they're like slipping the knife in your back. But, uh, and that's true for some of them. Well, most of them. But, uh, but uh, and then, then got a young guy named Michael Cooper. And Cooper was a great teammate. He was quicker than Andy. Young guy coming up and uh, a, a great friend of mine, you know, who maybe I've mentored just a little bit. But, uh, but he's also an example of just how hard the sport is right now. I mean, Michael's super quick and uh, a young guy and having a difficult time, you know, finding a ride, finding someone that's going to pay you big money. So, you know, the number of factory teams is being reduced and replaced by you know, wealthy guys that then go off and hire, you know, hire drivers. So uh, you're either racing for a rich guy or a factory, and it's always better to race for the factory. I'm going to brag on you about some things that you don't see in the bios anywhere. You used to spend a lot of time coming to the school that I taught at, at the technical college, and talking to the students in the program, giving them a reality check, entertaining the heck out of them, but over the years, you got to you open the doors for a lot of them. Now, granted, once you open the door, they got to, you know, they've got to perform. But you just, you know, you made it possible for at least a, uh, half a dozen or more guys to get with that Corvette team at the top level and work side by side with you. And you know, they they all say the same about you. You're just just Johnny. You're just, you know, you helped them. You 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 know, you guided them along. Some of them have their own shops and stuff now or have gone to other teams, but you were a big part of that. Well, I mean, I think if you're in an opportunity to give back, you know, uh, it's kind of like a, I don't know whether it's superstitious, but it's a good, a good karma thing. And, uh, and having been the poor guy wanting a career, if, you, if I can give advice or whatever, that's going to help somebody out, uh, I do. And uh, it's, a, it's a tough sport, you know. I mean, it is... You know, you got, you know, in, you got 100,000 guys trying to get one seat. Yeah, I mean, it's that, it, it's, it's that competitive. And it's the same for crew guys. Um, but it's also fun. You, you know, I, after the, the Cadillac program ended, I started doing a lot more coaching. All right. Teaching, you know, guys how to race cars, whether it be a wealthy guy at a Ferrari Challenge thing or, or whatever. And it, it reignites the passion in many ways in, in that, uh, you know, I, I brought my, my, the guy coaching Ferraris, you know, he's another billionaire guy and great guy. But like literally two weeks before Le Mans this year, he calls me up. He's like, hey, man, can you be available to do Le Mans? And I'm like, heck yeah, man, you want to race Le Mans? I'm going to go over there. I'll coach it. And the... There are so many emotions there because you're like, oh, God, I love this place. God, I hate being here and not driving and all that kind of stuff. But after like the second session, he gets out of the car and the look in his eyes and the excitement in his voice because he's starting to figure this race track out reminds you, is a reminder of why we do it, why it's so special, and it reignites the passion within you. And so... uh, 
So, and it's the same, you know, you, what you were talking about. You know, I've had several of, of the guys, uh, but your guys, you know, be on my team. And the energy they bring, you can just tell there's passion. They love what they're doing and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it is, uh, you know, you give back when you can. I used to, uh, when I had a pretty big platform with Corvette every year, Petit Le Mans run a charity auction where we helped. Uh, there's a local senior citizen daycare center here in Gainesville called the Guest House. And so we raised a whole lot of money for them and the Alzheimer's Association. And, uh, you know, you try to... You try to do the best things you can. It's funny. I, I was actually having a discussion with, uh, with somebody yesterday about this. You know, when you try to raise money for children, it's easy. Senior citizens, it's super difficult. We, we tend to kind of sweep them under the rug. So, uh, so that was something I was very passionate. Still am. And uh, so, yeah, you know, for all the stupid things I've done in my life, I've I've done a few good things that hopefully, you know, <laughs> God will be like, well, you messed up here. You messed up here. And, well, you did do that one nice thing. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> balance it out for you. That's right. a checklist. Tell us about your son. He recently got married. And uh, is he still pursuing a racing career? He, and how's that going? He is. He's uh, racing in the Toyota GR Cup. That's going reasonably well. It's certainly not the series that pro Toyota presented it to be. There's a little bit of monkey business going on uh, that I'm disappointed in Toyota about. But, uh, but he's an incredible talent. Because uh, version 2.0 is always better, isn't it? Right. And, uh, great kid, but it's a tough sport. You know, I mean, all the kids that most of the kids he's racing against are coming from mega wealthy families. You know, I can afford to support him for this one series, but then the next series is going to be like $700,000. And it gets more and more expensive as you go through the sport. So he's doing well, but it's going to take, you know, him working hard and searching for that opportunity or the mentor, you know, financial guy that can help him out. And, uh, but, but I told him, man, stick with it to your 30 or 31, give yourself a little bit of time. And if it doesn't happen, you still have enough time to, to, to restructure your life and, uh, and, you know, financially, you know, take care of yourself. Uh, but, uh, but I mean, it's a, it's a tough sport. You know, the, 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 the really tough thing is, and in this aspect, he's good. People know we're poor. I mean, we're not poor, but we, we're not race car driver rich. I can't afford to drop a million dollars a year on my kid driving. And uh, so any team that hires him knows that, okay, he's, he's either a free guy or we got to pay him five or ten grand an event. And uh, there is a guy now that drives for Ganassi in IndyCars. I think it's Erickson. He brings money to that team. He brings money to that. And this guy runs at the front. So right now they're in negotiations with, with Ganassi because they're like, you should be paying us. We shouldn't be paying you, you know. And so it is, you got a top guy in IndyCar bringing money to the team. It, uh, it's kind of a weird, a weird deal. So, I mean, racing is unique in that matter. Compare, compare your, your getting started to your son getting started, Canning getting, getting started. Cars are way easier. Cars mm -hmm. are way easier now. You got traction control, you got ABS. So it's really, when I started, it was H pattern. No, no, nobody had even heard of traction control. Uh, you know, the car never rolled off the trailer close. So you had to be very good about describing to, you didn't have any engineers. You had a chief mechanic, you know, so you, 
it, it was very, it was much easier back then to see who the talent was. You know, now, you know, the, you know, two guys might be within a tenth of a second in the same car, unless you have that, you know, access to the data. But until you can really turn all the assists off, you really don't know how, how strong a guy is. The cars, the cars are easier. Um, and, uh, and there's a whole lot more guys coming in with money. You know, so it is uh, super, super difficult. And then I don't think the wages are what they were when I was, you sure. know, I came up at a pretty good time for sports cars. So. Well, you, you came up, but you had wrenched on cars also. Did yeah. That, did that help you with your driving career? Well, I, I, I was always my own mechanic in go-karts uh, when, and then uh, with the Jim Russell School, this was in 1985, they had a program called the Mechanics Training Program. And you, in exchange for preparing all the cars, it was a seven-day-a-week job, you know, looking after all the, the schools, race cars. And in exchange for your free labor, you got to race. Well, I lasted about a month and a half as a mechanic. It wasn't where my passion was. I wanted to drive. Sure. And, uh, and one day, the guy that ran, you know, that facility at Riverside was like, you know what, man, you'd probably be better off in the office answering <laughs> phone calls because I'm good with people. Yeah. You know, I, I could talk to people. And so, uh, so that's, that's what I did. So, and it was, again, it gave me time to work on my proposals, to talk and introduce myself to people. And so it was a, it was a great opportunity. Yeah. And we spent, we spend a lot of time, <coughs> we being myself, Aaron and his son, Jacob, at a place called Atlanta Motorsports Park here. And the, the, the racing carts and stuff now are so different from what you grew up with. I know you've been up there. Tell me, give me a little comparison between, if, you, if, you're, a, if you're a 10 year old kid starting out on a cart in your day, you know, you're, you're racing the, the different, uh, Mark, what were the, some of the brands we used to race back in the, back in the day? Tecumseh, Tecumseh, Briggs, Stratton, there was the, the Mac. Uh, and uh, which was the two-stroke one, right? Um, so you know, I started out with a three and a half horsepower Tecumseh, and uh, what was the chassis? Marquee? Oh, yeah, no, I have no idea. Something that I bought for three hundred twenty-five bucks. <laughs> That's all I know. And uh, so, uh, and you never, <clears throat> you never could afford tires. Excuse me, I've been fighting allergies, but uh, but yeah, and then uh, graduated to the uh, two-stroke. And it was first a Corsair T80, and then it was the Yamaha 100-something, you know, two-stroke. You know, it's funny. I go back to my go-kart days. My my annual budget in go-karting was probably about $1,000 to $2,000 a year. And at that time, I was racing out on Long Island. And at that time, I was racing against guys spending $50,000, $60,000 a year. So you, I had to be good. I had to be good. I had to be good with my equipment, uh, show a lot of mechanical sympathy, don't abuse your stuff, and, uh, but found a way to win. And, uh, and it was funny, over the years, I had so many guys you know, tell me, man, it's a shame you don't come from money because you could really do something in this sport. And I had that happen in go-karts and cars. Uh, and uh, I was like, I'm, I'm going to give myself till I'm 30. You know, and luckily things started to work and, and take Well, hold. you know, in today, you know, my son is a cart racer. Shifter, he does shifter carts and tag carts and all that stuff. Um, he's 19, so he, he's just getting started in cars a little bit. 
Um, but, you know, there's really been, he's a absolute road racing nerd. There is a contingent of these kids that are really great drivers. They're doing sim stuff. They're doing karting. And there's been a big resurgence in karting, I think, in the last few years. And, uh, I mean, right now, road racing is glorious. I mean, oh. we have a wonderful resurgence in road racing. And, I mean, and the planets are aligning with, you know, the Netflix Formula One thing, but also you got, you know, the Ford versus Ferrari story. People that, that were NASCAR fans growing up never understood what Le Mans was and what it means. And they've had at least a little bit of understanding of it and are paying attention to it. And now the, these IMSA events have become just outstanding and and, and it's really a great time no, for, it is. for all it, road racing. It, it is. And, well, and when you see what NASCAR did by sending a car over mm-hmm. to Le Mans, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, so uh, I mean, maybe that's NASCAR realizing that their formula that was so successful in the 90s and, you know, the Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt era, is, yeah. I mean, you turn on a NASCAR race now, there's a whole bunch of empty seats. Yeah, and it never was like that. And uh, so, no, it is a great time in road racing. Karting, karting right now is insane. So you, you mentioned Kanan got married. The father of his wife is a guy named Alan Rudolph, who is a legend in go-karts, wicked fast guy. And, uh, and I'm like, God, if you guys have kids, just get them playing tennis. But uh, no, 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 more, no more racers. But you know what it costs to do a competitive go-kart weekend now? It's insane. A, I do a little bit, unfortunately. Between ten and $15,000. Yeah, we're racing against those guys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. And you don't stand a prayer. You don't. It's so like, you know, Yan Magnuson, uh, ex-Formula One, dad to Kevin, my teammate, uh, when he was racing in Europe, his first couple of years, he was getting crushed. Just, you know, he was a back-of-the-pack guy. And then his brother bought him onto a factory team. Okay, and all of a sudden... He's winning everything. He goes on to become a go-karting world champion. And so, no, equipment is everything. And yeah, so it, nowadays, it, you know, I don't think it's, it's much different. You go to a national event for karting now, there's tractor trailers with 12, 15 carts under that trailer. And, of course, they're all sharing data. But each driver's got a mechanic working on the cart, setting up the cart. And you put the same driver, you change drivers in the cart, and all those guys are fast. Oh, they're yeah. all good little drivers. But, yeah, it's equipment seems to be everything. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Uh, it's crazy how competitive that is, has become. And, and you know what? What's really sad? You're going to have so many devastated lives because, and I'm, I'm, I mean this honestly, the guys I know that were racing in their 20s and thought they were going to have a career and then they didn't are, to this day, 30 years later, can tell you about what happened lap seven at you know, Riverside <laughs> International Raceway. They, there are a lot of broken hearts of guys that wanted it so badly and with so much passion and it never happened. And, you know, you look at Formula One right now, you know, let's say you win a Formula Two championship, a Formula Three championship or something like that. There's no there's no place to go. Right. There's no place to go. There are no seats open. So, yeah, you, you can't. Is, <clears throat> and there are no seats opening up. It no, doesn't seem like, no, it, you know? no. So it is. All right. So where do those guys go? Well, OK, let's get, you know, I've got a guy that's willing to give me five million dollars. So I'm going to bring that to IndyCar. I'm going to take a mill for myself, you know, and uh, but so it's it, it's a sport that's a dream crusher, yeah. because if I'm a great football player in college, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my shot at the pros, you know, same with baseball, any other sport. And there's so many more openings that are available in those sports. So it's uh, yeah, it can be cruel. 
Well, um, I have a question for you. You know, I was talking about some of the modern uh, era IMSA stuff, or, or really WAC, any of the road racing. Um, and I know, I'm pretty sure you probably have an opinion on this. I know everybody does. Will you explain the driver rating system that the FIA uses and kind of your own, what you've had to go through the last what, three, four years with the silliness related to that? Yeah. I don't know if all the listeners quite understand. That. All right. So the FIA, which is a sanctioning governing body for all major, you know, uh, racing events, pretty much globally, they... Um, in, an, in order to try to make racing more fair and create parity, they do that in several ways. One is by trying to make all the cars equal, speed-wise. Um, but then when you have uh, races where uh, it's a two-driver or three-driver event, well, now you got to balance, okay, how do we make it fair for the guy that you know is a multimillionaire, wants to race, and is willing to drop $10 million a year into the sport, how do we make it fair for him to compete against a guy like myself, Johnny O'Connell? A professional race car driver. A professional driver. race car driver. So they're like, okay, we're going to rate drivers. So if you are a top guy, if you're a Lewis Hamilton, if you're a Scott Dixon, if you're a factory driver like I was, you are the highest rated guy. That You're a platinum. Right. Okay. If you're not a factory guy, but you're really wicked fast and you get paid to drive, well, then we're going to call you a gold. And sometimes championships will bump you from, from one level to another. As Correct. Well, right? The amateur, all right, as in you're bringing money or you're just, your pace isn't quite rare, right there is silver, and then the, the lowest one is bronze, okay? So if we're going to the 24 hours of Le Mans, and I'm, I'm one of the drivers, I'm a platinum, well, you got to balance that out with a bronze or an amateur. could be a silver. Okay, with a gold. So, you know, you're creating pairings so that you might have one guy that's really super fast, but then you might have a guy and he's the one paying the bills, but he's several seconds a lap slower. So you got to, they're trying to make everything fair. Well, you have a guy like, and Joey Hand is a great example. Joey Hand is in a fast American driver, race yeah. for Ford, won them all for them, and I think in 2016, uh, he's a platinum. Young guy, 40 some odd years old. Peak of his career. Perfect time. Ford pulls out. The only place he can go is if another factory picks him up. There was, he guy's been unemployed forever. Meanwhile, you know, the guy that's gold, well, he's a little bit more hireable. Then the guy's silver, a little bit more hireable. Well, one of the great things they did is certainly finally worked to my advantage is they allow when you are at any level, when you turn 50, Okay, they will drop you one level just because all of a sudden you're old. All right. <laughs> ta-da. Ta-da. And so, so the platinum at 50 goes to gold. All right. At 55, the gold goes to silver. All right. And then at 60, because, you know, once you hit, man, once you hit 60, everything's downhill. You know, you get a walker. You know, you get hearing aids. And you're automatically a way slower driver, right? Man, I tell you what. <laughs> so, uh, I, so I finally turned 60. So I became a bronze driver, uh, which means there there aren't very many very fast bronze drivers. 
Right. So all of a sudden, I'm a valuable commodity. Well, it, I think the system has made where a fast bronze is the most value is more valuable than a platinum driver. Correct. What, yeah. Because platinum drivers, there are a bunch of them, but finding a fast bronze is by far the hardest thing. It's correct. And so that is so I'm racing this year in a series that's all for all bronze, and there's some fast guys in there, uh, and uh, so uh, but the idea is to get back to Le Mans. I have unfinished business at Le Mans. I've got the most wins for an American there, the most podiums for an American there. Uh, I do not have the most appearances. Uh, the most appearances is held by Mastin Gregory at 16. So I've raced at Le Mans 15 times. No kidding. Uh, now, so I think you've won Sebring more than anybody, More than right? anybody. Yeah, more than okay. Anybody. So I got, you eight, got that fact right. Yeah, I got, I've got eight wins there. Tom Christensen only has seven. And, uh, and he ain't going to be there again. And he ain't going to be there again. <laughs> so, uh, so I think we're, we're, we're solid there. Well, so. I, I mean, I've watched, I watched, I, I've seen several drivers in your situation where it's almost like, how is a guy so fast not able to get into a car? And a lot of times the silver rated drivers can't find a seat anywhere. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's ridiculous to me. I know, uh, well, uh, you know, Christina Nielsen, big push for women racing. Yeah. Here's Christina Nielsen, who's a great driver. But she's in the same boat. Could, yeah. Couldn't get, you know, could not get down. She's trying to get downgraded to bronze up yeah. until this year. It's been a challenge, you know, and I know you've dealt with that for years now. It, How frustrating. It is extremely frust frustrating. But, uh, but no, no. So now I'm in a decent place. And you know what? And, and you know what? It, it, Man, what I, I've been so lucky. You know, when I sit back, and I don't, I rarely do it because I always try to look forward. But uh, when I look back and I think about all the cool stuff yeah. that I got to do, and the very magical place you go in your head when you're when you're racing a car at a, at a high level, it uh, it's pretty special. You know, the guy, the guy I coach in Ferrari Challenge, great guy, billionaire. You know, he and I were talking one time and. Uh, and I'm like, Brad, you know what? There's, there's two ways to become a racing car driver. Number, number one's to do what I did and, you know, be poor for a long time. And maybe you get a break and, uh, and you know, get some great rides and are capable of making a living, uh, you know, racing cars. And the other way is what you did, which is create a company, become super rich, and then pay for yourself. And I'm like, Brad, I think, I think your way was probably a little, <laughs> a little bit better. And a very thoughtful guy, Brad. And he's like, I tell you what, man, I don't know. He's like, I'd give an awful lot to stand on the top step of the podium at Le Mans, you know. And uh, when you get to the end of the day, life isn't about having your private jet. And Lord knows if I hadn't had kids, I probably would. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, uh, but life's about memories. And so when I, when I you know, look back, you know, and doing a show like this, when you start reminding, you know, you go back to thinking about, you know, your career and the memories and the people you've met along the way. It's a pretty, uh, I've been very lucky, been very rich for all that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, well, that's awesome. I'm, a, I'm a happy bronze right now. I'm racing. That's a happy bronze. I'm, I like I'm, it. I'm, I'm racing for a couple that are out of Alpharetta and they've got, it's a tiny little team. They're passionate about racing and, uh, you know, we, we're doing quite well. We've got, everybody's got 2023 cars, current cars, and I'm in a... So it's a blast. 2014 Audi. That's um, fantastic. I'm racing old stuff, so it's like, I got to work pretty hard. So, oh, that's, so, that's yeah, wonderful. So that's, it challenges you a bit, too. That's what we live for. Okay, that's so as a, as a platinum Johnny, yeah, and as a bronze Johnny, 
when the Platinum Johnny is out there racing a car and there's a bronze guy that's not a Johnny, what's going through your head as far as this possible moving chicane that's called a bronze? What, how, how do you factor that into what you do? You, uh, well, when, you, when, when you're a Platinum, you're just ruthless to everybody. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it is. And now, you know, now I, I'm not quite as ruthless, but I, you know, you, you know, you got to, you, you, you need to race aggressively, but with respect. And, uh, and that is one of the things I think just, you know, when we spoke about it a little bit earlier, there's more contact in the sport than ever before. Right. Because guys aren't showing respect, you know, and, and. You know, the, again, when daddy's writing a check or you're a billionaire, you go, oh, all right, so that was a $30,000 rep. All right. And that's no big deal, man. Yeah. And uh, but, you know, it is. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it is. Uh, and you got to you kind of have to race at the same level those guys are without the contact. You know, I'd like to think, you know, most of the guys out there have watched me throughout my career. And so hopefully there's a certain amount of okay, well, I got to race this guy clean because we know he races clean. But, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. We keep moving forward and, uh, you know. Hey, what's the favorite track out of all the tracks you've driven over the years? What is uh, one of you, what is your, or do you not have one? Dude, you love I, them all. I, there's some very, Suzuka's cool, all right, in, in Japan. But then so's the crappy little racetrack in Costa Rica where <laughs> on literally, literally like just off the edge of the racetrack were trees. You know, I mean, oh. I raced, a, I raced a, at an airport in Panama where the, the, uh, they just circled the racetrack with barbed wire. There's no walls or anything. There's barbed bar- wire. Barbed wire. <laughs> so to stop people and from coming in, not people, cars yeah, going yeah, out. Yeah, okay, right, right. yeah. So, I mean, uh, but they're like, what are, what are magical laps? A magical lap is it's 530 in the morning. Uh, you're in the car at Le Mans. The air is cool. The sun isn't up yet, but it's light. It, that's happy hour. And, yeah. and, and you're not racing other guys. You're racing your dash. And you're like, oh, man, I got a good one going. And you come by, start, finish, boom, you get a great lap. And uh, so that is, that is special. You know, I've been lucky enough to, to race the Nürburgring. So, you know, uh, it, in the States, you know, it's, I've, Sebring's special to me. Uh, Road America is just a phenomenal lap. Uh, so, and, and, of course, you know, Road Atlanta, Road Atlanta is, is cool. Road Atlanta's tough, man. The, it's funny. You ask your European guys what circuits do they like. They don't like Coda. You know, they, they no. don't like any of the stuff that's been built recently. People love the racetracks that were built in the 50s and 60s. They, they, they were not too complicated. You had a long straightaway coming up to an overtaken area, and, uh, and there was a sense of danger involved. Yeah, you know? my, the, my first trip to Road America wasn't until a few years ago. I had all the times I've watched on television that race, whether it was Indy cars, sports cars, I didn't understand the elevation changes. I never understood. On television, you don't get it. Yeah. Until you're there. And, and what an unbelievable just place, part of the country, the people. Yeah. It's just a cool place. It is. It is. Uh, and, uh, you know, they repaved it. I heard it's so, quick. Uh, so, yeah, I'm going to be out there in a couple of weeks. Oh, I'm, wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. But, uh, but yeah, just a beautiful part of the country. Yeah. History. History. Yeah. I mean, that goes all the way back to the 50s. So, uh, it, uh, yes. And there's, in all the American tracks, mm-hmm. I know you hear a lot of European drivers that come over. 
talk about how they love the American tracks because it, it uh, you know, in, in Europe you have so much big asphalt runoff areas. Here you don't. If yeah. you make a mistake, it's a real mistake it, on a lot of the American tracks. Which, which I, I think, I, I think, I think that's a good thing because that there. That separates things, you know. What fast guys are willing to take more risks than than guys that aren't. Uh, you know, you look at a kick, uh, uh, track like uh, Mosport Canadian Tire Motorsport Park. You know, big commitment there. Uh, Road America, the king. You know, you got some fast places, and there. You, you know what I mean? It's tragic to say, but the if you fall off at Coda. Yeah, you know, nothing. You, all right, yeah. They, there's yeah, no consequence. There, there's right. no consequence. And so uh, so I think it cleans up the racing a little bit. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, no, we got some great tracks here. I think the reason the, the Europeans like it is because they can get a job over here. You know. <laughs> you right. know. Uh, you see, my name is uh, Jean-Pierre. I'm from France. I'm the racing car driver. Oh, you're hired, man. You're from France. You know. <laughs> there's so many. I, I just wish, you know, one thing. I wish our teams were... We're more supportive of American drivers. Uh, so, uh, well, there's some great American drivers. Oh, there are. There really yeah, are. Yeah, yep. Yeah. No, we got some. We got some talent over here. Now, uh, I love Road Atlanta, but I've, yeah. I've only a couple years ago was my first trip to Sebring, and as a spectator, not not even in my wildest dream, a driver. I'm watching these cars, and I'm watching that track. And you say this is your, you know, you've won the most here. This yeah. is one of your favorite tracks. I I don't know how the cars stay together at Sebring. Yeah. I mean, the track is so rough where the where the runways come across and stuff. What what is what makes that your favorite place? Yeah, yeah. Or one of your favorites? <clears throat> one the challenge. Great combinations of corners. You got some fast corners. You know, turn one. Uh, great overtaking areas. It's just got a rhythm. Uh, and then you know your turn seventeen and turn one are you know you get they're rib breakers. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, they are, it's really hard on your body, but, uh, but it is, I, I think I did well there because of mechanical sympathy, you know, being, you know, I don't clobber curbs. That I comes from your go-kart days, having to fix your own equipment. Exactly. Yeah, That's what it comes from. I think it does. Yeah. I think it does. Uh, and so, uh, and yeah, yeah, I mean, and it's a great crowd, but it's just got, there's, there's an energy there. And uh, so, oh, yeah. but but it's just it's it's got a great rhythm. It's got a really great rhythm. And so, uh, but it is it is uh, it is it is tough on you, and it's tough on the car. You know, it's twelve hours there is like twenty four at Le Mans. And uh, as far as how you're abusing your equipment, a lot of teams use it. You know, they will do the twelve hours, and then they will spend Monday, Tuesday, continuing to run with that same car to to prep. For Le Mans, okay. What what is our what are our weak components? So you know, and that's you know, you go back. You were you know, here's another difference. So when I first went to uh, to Sebring, <clears throat> excuse me, Le Mans stuff like that in '94. If at Le Mans you could you could do a push lap at a 403, you raced at a 407, 408. You took some out. You didn't break as hard. You slowed the shift down a little bit. And uh, to look after the car, take care of things. Now everything is flat chat. It's a, every, every lap's a qualifier. And so that is how far technology has come. And how strong the cars have oh, yeah, and all yeah, that yeah, in the engineering. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of the cars will still finish. Oh, yeah. It's not oh, like, yeah. I mean, it used to be, you know, Le Mans, you'd have 20 cars finish the race and 80 cars or 60 cars yeah. start it. It's not like that anymore. No, no, no. It is, uh, 
the, the cars are stout. They yeah. keep running. Yeah, yeah. So unless a driver makes a mistake, rares, you know, they're us it's usually a driver mistake that causes you to, you know, to, and you win those events uh, by coming in, getting fuel, tires, and going out again. That's how you win the long stuff, by not t taking yourself out, by hitting somebody or doing something stupid. Johnny O'Connell. Yeah. Still hungry. Whole lot of stories. Still racing. Yeah. Whole lot of stories. You coming back to tell more sometime? Uh, anytime you ask. You know, anytime. you're here, your wife's cooking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 That's a motivator. Well, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. You know, having you here, but it's been a pleasure knowing you for the past few decades. We won't talk about how many anymore. And, uh, you know, you're welcome back anytime. Cool. Uh, great stuff. Thanks for what you've done for me, what you've done for my kids, and, uh, you know, the programs and stuff. And, uh, you know, what you've done with your family, your life, it's uh, all to be commended. Well, that, that's because you only know the good stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I mean, sometime, I, no, I'm never going to let you in all the bad stuff. Oh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. I got to ask one final question before we go. I follow you on Facebook. You've got a toilet for sale for $100. And I'm thinking... Why yeah. hasn't some rabid fan bought this toilet? I, Give us a story behind this toilet. God, because no, Lord Almighty. All right, so, like, you know, I had this. What late, if Elio uh, Castroneves, you know, offers one up for 50 bucks? Who's, whose toilet's going to sell first? You know what? I, uh, <laughs> it's a really good Kohler toilet, too. I mean, so, like, I used to, where I live, I used to be a tiny little cabin. On, on Lake Lanier, and finally, I'm like, I pull the trigger and uh, and uh, build the hopefully what's going to be the last house. So you know, I mean, it's a perfectly good toilet, you know, uh, that I'd put in in the in the lake house. So I'm like, I don't want to waste that. So I took it out, and uh, <laughs> and I'm so I've had this toilet sitting in my garage for two years, and finally, like, I'll put it on on marketplace. I didn't know it was getting splattered all over the world. <laughs> And, and there are dudes, there are dudes that are like toilet experts. And they're like, well, can you get me the serial number? It's located here. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> so it's still sitting in my garage. And uh, it's a bargain at a hundred bucks, man. It's, oh, yeah. It's Considering practical. what the price of yeah. toilets were. Yeah. I just wondered if, you know, yeah. like I say, some rabid fan. You know, has to have Johnny's. I'll autographing. You autograph I'll, I'll autograph I'd, I'd put that up on yeah, marketplace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> that, you know, and then the big table. Somebody was interested in the big table. They disappear. I mean, I'm giving this stuff away. You ever do use marketplace? People like I gotta tell you. You know, you offer something at like two hundred bucks that that you spent like three grand on you just wanted somebody to take it away and they'll come in they'll agree to it and then when they get there they're like well i got 50 bucks for it yeah you know i, I mean it's yeah. like no no yeah, no so anyway thank you uh for letting everybody know about my Twitter. <laughs> okay all right quite welcome yeah thank you johnny o'connell thank you bud can i give a little shout out here bill for the our favorite muscle car restoration folks are... Year One in Cornelia, Georgia. Yeah, they are classic car, uh, classic muscle car restoration people. they got something so cool here. They have got a coloring book out. I never mm. saw this before, but I've got one of their email blasts, which everybody listening should get. You should right. go to yearone.com, get on their email list. And they've got a coloring book of all the popular uh, muscle cars. And they, it's an outline, outline design, as every coloring book is. And we, you know, the three of us should have a contest. 
Oh, see yeah. Who, I'm going to get three of these coloring books and okay. see who stays inside the lines. Well. Nobody. No. no. <laughs> but I, while I was looking at this, I was thinking this is so cool because I could make a copy of one of the pages. Like when I built my Nova, I could have made a copy of the page and, and done some things on paper before mm-hmm. I did them on the car. Right. Yeah, you could. Yeah. How much more trouble could I gotten myself into? <laughs> Another thing that I did use when I was doing my car was the uh, assembly manuals that are available from year one for specific cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took pictures of everything, and I made a lot of diagrams and a lot of drawings and, and you know, all that, and tagged and wrapped everything. But when it came to putting it together, it sure was handy to have the assembly manual. Sure it is. Just so you don't put one... Th- the sequence of events is important mm-hmm. in the assembly manual. Right. Uh, that's what gets lost sometimes in taking pictures. You know, do oh, yeah. I put the window in first or do I put the track in first? Exactly. And sometimes you got to do it different ways. So, And if you go all the way to the end of their email blast that they put out, you will see Bud's Garages at the bottom of the page. Okay. And check out all the specials. Uh, we're right there with Kenny Wayne Shepherd, O'Neill Outside, BF Goodrich Tires, Hot Rods Children's Charities. Um Driving at home, year one, and Industrial Depot. We're all sharing the bottom of that page. Okay. Great folks, and deal with all of them if you possibly can. Right. Check them out at yearone.com. Time for some thank yous, Tim. Okay. I'm going to shoot a match. Yeah. All right. Who would you like to thank? Well, I'd like to thank the Academy. <laughs> How about we, we thank Concept One Pulley Systems? Okay. All right, year one, Muscle Car Restoration folks, Mm -hmm. and Lanier Technical College for uh, being partners in this podcast. And we would especially like to to, uh, thank Johnny O'Connell. Oh, yeah. He's the man. Yeah, yeah. He's still hungry. He's still racing. Mm -hmm. He's still a good guy. Still proposes to my wife every time he comes over for dinner. Oh, okay. But uh, Johnny's the real deal, and I wish him more success as he goes on. I want to thank Jacobs Media. Mm-hmm. For the use of the studio and Bill, who's still awake, even after the rotary valve discussion, he stayed awake through the whole thing and is in there trying to keep us all straightened out. So, yeah. Bill Wilson, thank you. Thanks, hey, Bill. how about telling us about your uh, trivia gig before we get out of here? Because that's national now. I'm glad you asked. I'm production coordinator for a trivia company that has games throughout the United States of America. DJTrivia.com is where you can find our locations including uh, four that I host personally here in North Georgia. Just log on to the website for times and locations. It's free to play. And these are located all throughout the U.S., right? Correct, yeah. And we want to thank all of you. We've got listeners now in Belgium, Africa, the U.S., of course, Canada, mm-hmm. uh, places that I can't even point out on a map. Right. We've we, we got to get a globe in here and, yeah. and put little pins in it for sure. all different people. And wonder if get one that's new enough that the countries are all the <laughs> Yeah. Current. <laughs> Our guest next week is going to be an actor. Uh, he used to be a student of mine back in high school. And ironically, he just grew up hanging out and looking exactly like Burt Reynolds in his younger days. That would be Tim Phillips, and he's going to tell us the stories of hanging out with Burt and then becoming Burt uh, in, in his own special way and cast of characters that, that keep the... That whole era going on, you know, Smokey and the Bandit and, mm-hmm. and that thing. And he, he's a good guy. He's down-to-earth guy. And, man, he's a busy guy. Oh, yes, he is. For sure. Don't forget about Bud's Garage, the podcast on terrestrial radio, right here on uh, WDUN, AM 550 and FM 102.9, and access WDUN and podcast on all the 
podcast sites that you're listening to this podcast on. Right. So you can have Bud's Garage or you can have Bud's Garage Overdrive. We sure. listen to both every week. Mm-hmm. A little bit different, one from the other. And, right. Uh, we, we get a longer time to spend with our guests on the podcast. That's one of the reasons we like doing it. Mm-hmm. And we want to thank all of you for tuning in uh, when you can and uh, listening to all this informative automotive buffoonery. We will be back next week. Remember to keep between the dishes, shiny side up. Have a great week. Okay. Couldn't do it without you. Oh, thanks. You, you either, bud. We'll be back. Mm-hmm.